So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 42. So if you have your uh, Bibles, devices, etc., go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 42, starting in verse 1. We'll be there in just a few moments. And before we jump into the scripture this morning, I want to introduce you to someone named Chris or something named Chris. I don't know, a creature named Chris. So let's put that first picture up there. This is Chris the sheep. Uh, Chris was discovered wandering around the hills near Canberra, Australia in 2014. Chris is a merino ram. So merino wool, if you have anything made of that kind of material, you get it from something like Chris. But the problem is these sheep are meant to be sheared annually. So every year, these sheep are all herded together for the annual shearing, and they get something like 11 pounds of wool from each one of these sheep. Somehow Chris had ended up not getting sheared for maybe his whole life, but at least a few years. And yeah, here's, here's picture number two, and that's what Chris looked like when Chris was discovered. And so they finally got Chris into the shearing area. And let's look at the final picture. So that's the before and after picture. And the red on Chris, by the way, is just an antibiotic. It's not, he's not bleeding or anything. Um, but they sheared Chris finally, right? Maybe his first shearing ever. And they pulled something like 90 pounds of wool off of this sheep, enough to make 30 sweaters worth of wool. Chris, if Chris had not been discovered, he probably would not have survived much longer because he, would have, he had trouble walking already with 90 pounds of wool on him. There would have been disease and other things going on. And so Chris was lucky to have been discovered when he was so that he could be sheared and, and get that weight off of him. Now, I'm telling you this story for a couple of reasons. One, I just like animals with like regular person names. I just enjoy that it's Chris. You know, it's like it could be anything, but they're, they're like, we're calling this one Chris, you know. Um, I like like a cat named Steve or something like that. You know, I just enjoy that. Um, but the real reason I'm telling you this story is that I think if we're thinking about Chris in a metaphorical sense, I think we have more in common with Chris sometimes than we might like to admit. And here's what I mean. We walk through this life, we walk through this world, and we have things that happen in our lives. We have hurts, we have wounds that, that we might store up, and I think emotionally we might end up looking something like Chris the sheep in an emotional and spiritual sense. Because there's really two different ways that we can walk through this life. We, we can be people who practice the Christian art of forgiveness, and we don't keep a long, line of, long list of offenses and things like that, or we can be an emotional Chris, right, or a spiritual Chris, where we just, everything that happens to us, we just accumulate and we wear it, and it burdens us down, grudges, offenses, and all of these things, and it begins to accumulate and weighs us down, and we walk through this life in a burdened way. And I'm bringing up this idea of forgiveness because we're at the point in the story, in our series, going through the life of Joseph, God meant it for good, where we've been talking in this sort of abstract way about pain and trouble. I mean, Joseph had these specific offenses that were committed against him. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. The, the amount of cruelty and betrayal that he had experienced was extreme. And, and we've been talking in sort of an abstract way about like pain and and, and suffering, and why does God allow certain things to happen? Why didn't God j rescue Joseph 
out of that pit? Why didn't God rescue Joseph out of slavery when Joseph was falsely accused and thrown into prison? Why didn't God rescue him out of that situation? But if we're thinking about it, not in such an abstract way, but a specific way, people were attached to each of the wrongs that were done to Joseph. And that's what we experience. I mean, sometimes you you might experience a natural disaster or a health thing where there's not like a specific person involved with the pain you've experienced. But a lot of the pains that we experience in accumulated life have a person attached to it. A person with a face that you think of when you think about the wrong that was done to you or the voice, maybe the words that were spoken that hurt you deeply. And what do we do with these people who have hurt us or who have wronged us? Scripture talks about forgiveness being the way that we need to approach the wrongs that we've experienced. John Lennox, uh, he's a Bible scholar and he wrote a book that has been helpful for me in uh, preparation of these series and, and, or these sermons. And he talks about this idea of forgiveness. And he said there's really two pieces of forgiveness. There's an inward and an outward portion. And the inward piece is a letting go inwardly. And maybe it's a one-time big decision and then maybe continual small decisions depending on what we're forgiving someone of. But there's an outward piece of this as well, which is a release of the debt, so to speak. It's giving up the right to vengeance, giving up the right to get even with the person who has wronged us. We say, you don't owe me. I give up the right to get even. Joseph was wronged deeply, as we talked about, sold into slavery by his brothers, accused of a crime that he didn't commit, but God was with him. And we've been walking through this story over the last three weeks. This is the fourth and final week of our series, God Meant It for Good. And wish me luck now, because I'm about to try to cover five chapters worth of story um, in, in this one sermon, try to keep it to roughly 35 minutes, which is what I normally try to keep it to. But I want to catch you up, uh, kind of I'll tell some of the story, we'll zero in on some of the passages of Scripture, but we're at this point in Joseph's life where the famine has begun. Where we left off last Sunday, he'd been placed in authority, he's the second in command over the entire nation of Egypt. He is now in this powerful position. He went from prisoner to standing in front of Pharaoh to, to interpreting Pharaoh's dreams that God gave him these interpretations. And now he's in this place where he can prepare the nation of Egypt, the whole empire and you know, all the land and the power that they had for the time of famine that was coming, the time of plenty and then the time of famine, right? Seven years of plenty is on the way. Seven years of famine will follow, so store up the excess grain in the years of plenty so that you have enough for the lean years. And Pharaoh says, that sounds like a great plan. You do it. And so Joseph goes from a pit in Israel to slavery, to prison, to now the second in command over all of Egypt. And now the famine has been going on for a little while, and this is where our story picks up. Genesis chapter 42, we're going to start reading at verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. 
He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it's the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. So we'll hit pause right there for just a moment. I want, you to, I want us to make sure we understand the stakes of this moment. We've spent three weeks before leading up to this point in the series talking about all this backstory. Joseph has been wounded deeply, hurt by his brothers, sold into slavery, and now there's this moment where the brothers that he has not seen for all these years, and because of the, the text is kind of specific about how many years have passed, and we can pick up little clues here and there, Joseph was sold into slavery at the age of 17. Joseph is now 39 years old, and he sees his brothers before him, and he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. In Egypt, the way an Egyptian would dress, I mean, we've seen this from even the sculptures and statues and things like that. Egyptians would have shaved heads. They had shaved faces. They would have oil kind of coating their skin, and so they'd have kind of a shiny look to them, and it's been all of these years, right? It's been 22 years, if I did my math correctly. Um, Joseph is talking through an interpreter to his brothers. So there's this moment here where they, they don't recognize him. He recognizes them, right? He looked Egyptian. He's talking through an interpreter. He probably um, sounded Egyptian. He probably even walked like an Egyptian, right? If we um, just walking around like that, I don't know. If you were plotting, if you were Joseph and you were thinking about this moment, what would I say to my brothers if I was right here with them? Like in the, the, the years in slavery, he's working hard every day and he's, his head hits the pillow or whatever they laid on at night during that time. And the moments before he's falling asleep and maybe thinking about his life and the things that he's experienced and maybe the, even the fantasies that would play out in his mind, like if I saw my brothers, I would give them a piece of my mind. You know, we don't, we don't know exactly what Joseph was thinking. We know what Joseph said. We have his actions described for us in this story. But if you were coming up with a revenge fantasy, Joseph is in the perfect situation to be able to just pay them back big time. Right, if he was Liam Neeson and not Joseph, you know, he would be in the movie Taken. He would just be revenge, or if he's a John Wick type or whatever it might be, right? He could make them feel, he was in the power to make them feel exactly how they made him feel. I wish you experienced what it was like to be in a pit. I'm gonna put all of you in your own pits. He's like the Oprah of revenge. You get a pit and you get a pit and you get a pit, you know. 
You're all going to be in pits. Then you're going to be sold into slavery. You could ex- he could have re- paid them back exactly the way they paid or the way they treated him. But Joseph is in this moment, and he's, he's seeing them, and he comes, you know, by the way, if you ever come up with a perfect comeback after you've walked away from a difficult conversation, but it's usually way after the conversation, you know, someone, someone said something mean to you, and you're like, I should have said this, you know, but you think about it like when you're in the shower later, you know, uh, later that day. Jo- Joseph likely, I mean, had been thinking about this moment. Let's see what Joseph actually does. We're, we're, we got the beginning of it. He's, he's talking to them and questioning them. Joseph's being very wise here. He's not being mean. He's considering what's going on. What, what has gone on in their lives? What kind of people are these? How, what have my brothers become? Are they the same as they were when they did this horrible thing to me? Or maybe they've changed. He's examining them. This testing process Begins. We'll keep reading verses 18 to 28. So they've been in custody for a few days. It says, On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you were honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound them before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey, and this was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack, and he said to his brothers, my money has been put back here. It is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? This test begins, and Joseph hears something from his brothers that must have meant the world to him. They don't realize that he understands their language. He's speaking Hebrew, and he's speaking Egyptian. They're speaking Hebrew, and they're speaking through a translator, but he knows what they're saying. Imagine how healing that must have been to have them express regret. We shouldn't have done that to Joseph. This bad thing is happening to us because the way we treated Joseph, we heard him crying out. Reuben's saying, I told you guys you shouldn't have done this. This is because of this. And Joseph's heart breaks in this moment. Scripture tells us that he turns away and weeps. There's multiple times where Joseph just cannot contain his emotion and he turns away and weeps throughout this story, throughout this forgiveness and reconciliation story. And I think we see in this Joseph's heart towards his brothers. He he loves them, but he needs to know if they have changed. Have you grown? Are you exactly the same person that you were 22 years ago? Or have things changed? Sometimes we think of people in our past or people in our lives that maybe we haven't seen in a long time and they're sort of frozen in amber in our minds. We go, we assume that maybe the way they were back then, that we've grown all this all, over the years, but they're just the way they were. 
And Joseph knows that he can't maybe trust his perspective of that. He needs to examine them a little bit and, and see, are you different? Have you changed? Remember, this is the family through whom God would bless the world. This is Abraham's descendants that one day there would be another descendant that would come from one of them, in particular Judah, who would be Jesus, right? Who would, and then before that, the King David, that there'd be a nation that would come from this one family. And the point of this whole family's blessing was that they might bless the world. Is this a, the kind of family through which God could work that thing out and do that kind of activity that he had planned? The other question here for, for Joseph might have been, hey, I, I might have forgiven them, but can I ever be reconnected with them? Can I ever be reconciled with them? He's examining and he's testing them. So we're going we're gonna to skip a little bit here, actually a whole chapter, chapter 43 and the rest of chapter 42, and I'll just tell you what happens. They go home. Simeon, member is in, remember, is in custody, and they talk to, jo- to Jacob and they say, Dad, Simeon's still in Egypt. They told us that we could have him back if we brought Benjamin with us, our youngest brother. Benjamin is the new favorite, by the way. He's the only full sibling of Joseph. The rest of them are all half-brothers with Joseph. His mother was Rachel, just like Joseph's mother was Rachel. And he was beloved. And Jacob is, this is his favorite. His relationship with Rachel, he sees that every time he sees Benjamin and the way he used to see that when he saw Joseph. And the father says, no. I'm sorry, Simeon is going to have to stay in Egypt for a little while. You're not taking Benjamin with you. If something happened to Benjamin, I don't know what I would do. Time passes. We don't know exactly how long, but they eat the food that they've bought from Egypt, and they're once again in a position where they're hungry. And so Judah promises um, to his, his father, he says, I will be responsible for Benjamin. I will make sure that I bring Benjamin back to you safely. Dad, you don't have to worry. Judah, meanwhile, was the one that suggested selling Joseph into slavery, if you remember the story where we started a few weeks ago. They go back, and they go back with twice the money, by the way, because they're like, there must have been some mistake where we ended up with this money in, our, in our, the, the, the bags of food that we brought back. They're, I don't know what happened there, but they were terrified about what was going to happen when they showed up back in Egypt. Is this some sort of trap? They're going to think we stole this. They go back with the money that was returned in their bags, plus extra money to buy more food, Judah says, I promise to protect Benjamin. They're reunited. They see Joseph again. Joseph continues to hide who he is, but there's more testing that continues. They explain, by the way, to the steward, I like this little detail that's included in chapter 43, that they say, we don't know what happened with that money, but we brought back the money. And the steward says, hey, I, uh, I got the money that I needed. It must have been your God just you know, blessing you and giving you extra money. They have a meal with Joseph. Joseph sees his brother, Benjamin, but doesn't, again, does not tell them who he is. And now we're going to see chapter 44. After this meal is over, they leave with more food, and it's time for their final exam. This test that Joseph is wisely carrying out to see what kind of people are they now? What What kind of men are his brothers? Are they the same as they were in his memory, or have they changed? Genesis chapter 44, verses 1 through 13, says this. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. 
Quick note too, Benjamin was treated as the favorite at the meal. He got more food than the rest of his brothers did. So that that was part of the test as well. But this is the final exam. Verse 3, as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys and they'd gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks? And by that he practices divination? You've done evil in doing this. It's a special silver cup that's in the bag in Benjamin's bag. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words and they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. And he said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and each man opened his sack. And as he, he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. They made, it, made their way back to where Joseph was, and the conversation continues. We'll skip a few of these verses here. That they, He says, hey, we're all going to be your slaves. If one of us is staying, all of us is staying. We will all be your slaves. Joseph says, no, 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 I don't need all of you. I just need the one who stole my cup. That's the one who I want as a slave. Remember, Judas made this promise to his father. I will bring him back. I personally guarantee his safety. Dad, I will make sure that he's able to come home. He gives them this opportunity in the final exam of the test. What kind of men are my brothers? The test is this. They have the perfect opportunity to do exactly what they did to Joseph and not have to make up a story about a wild animal attacking their brother. They can do exactly the same sin that they committed before. The same, this is the same dynamic. This is the favorite son now. They don't even have to lie, right? They don't even know that Benjamin didn't take the cup necessarily. They're like, it's in there. Maybe Benjamin's a kleptomaniac. We don't know why, you know, why'd you do that, Benjamin? Don't take his cup. That guy fed us a meal. It was the weirdest thing, right? Like, why, why did Benjamin take? Dad, I don't know. Benjamin stole a cup and now he's, it was a perfect opportunity to get rid of their brother. Judah, who, as we mentioned, he's, he's going to become the leader of the family. He's not the oldest member of the family. That's Reuben. But Judah's the, the second oldest and would become the leader of the family. And before this, we're, he's an immoral man. Judah's a very sinful man. Um, there's kind of details in the previous chapters of, about that. And he was the ringleader of selling Joseph into slavery. He begins to speak to Joseph and he says, my, I had this conversation with my father my, that I would protect Benjamin. You don't know how much Benjamin means to my dad. And then we'll pick up here in verse 30. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant with my father and the boy is not with us, this is his conversation with Joseph, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father." 
there's this moment here of self-sacrifice. Judah doesn't know that Benjamin didn't actually take the cup and it was all a test. But if someone's going to stay as a, slavery, a slave, Judah says, it's going to be me. I, I cannot look at my father and see the look on his face when I, when I don't bring Benjamin back. I, I cannot do that to him. And, and Ju- Judah had seen that look before on his father's face. And now Judah in this moment says, I will sacrifice myself. And that sounds a lot like one of Judah's descendants, doesn't it? I will give my life for his. This breaks Joseph. Emotionally, in verse 45, the test is over. They pass the test. 45 verses 1 through 12. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you for a remnant on earth and to keep alive for for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. Three times in this passage, Joseph says, God sent me here. Three times. He, he says, he, and he says, don't even be dismayed about it. Like you have to, um, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph has forgiven his brothers. He doesn't even want them to feel bad about what happened, right? And he mentions that God had this planned. God used what you did to bring about this redemption. God took this this evil act that was done and turned it back on itself and used, used it to bring something good. We're going to skip a whole bunch of chapters now, but I want to just tell you that Joseph has a joyful reunion with his father, with his family. All the family moves to Egypt to wait out the famine and be provided for by Joseph. The years pass. Jacob blesses his sons and he passes away. And then after Jacob passes away, his brothers are nervous again. They're concerned that maybe, hey, Joseph was just waiting out his dad dying. And now that his dad's gone, he's not going to feel restrained in any way. And now payback time has come. And then this conversation takes place in Genesis 50. And this is where the words of our series come from. So let's turn to chapter 50 and we're going to read verses 15 to 21. 
When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This moment is powerful. Once again, we see Joseph weeping. He says, I'm not in the place of God. I'm not in the, in the God is the judge. You, you actually will have to answer to God, but I'm, I'm not God. But he's, he has this conversation with them, and they're genuinely asking for forgiveness at this point. We're not told that they did that earlier than this. But Joseph does something so emotionally mature. He stands there. I mean, he's talking to them. I don't know if he's seated or standing, but he's having this conversation with them. And they say, hey, we did something really wrong to you, Joseph. Dad said to forgive us. We don't know if their dad said that. He probably didn't. They were probably just scared, you know. Dad told us, dad said, you know, to tell you that he said to forgive us. You know, dad, that's what dad said. And Joseph just is weeping. And then he says, listen, you, I'm not in the place of God. But he says this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. So he looks at them and here's the emotional emotional maturity in him. You meant that for evil. And he looks at them. And he tells them that. You know what we tend to do when we're forgiving somebody? We tend to go, hey, it's okay. No big deal. Or you didn't mean anything by it. Isn't that what we tend to do? We kind of let people off the hook that way. So someone has wronged you. And rather than admitting, like, here's the impact it had on me. Like, that, that, that was it. We're not honest about the impact. Rather than doing that, we just go like, hey, don't worry about it. No big deal. Or it wasn't that big a deal. Or you didn't mean anything by it, Right? He doesn't do that. He says, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. You're you're responsible for your own actions. God didn't manipulate you like a puppet to do something bad. God outmaneuvered you. God took the bad thing that you intended and God brought something good out of it. And we see that he's truly forgiven them in this moment. He's not trying to pay them back. This whole revenge is a a dish best served cold, you know. He's not doing that. He's not waiting and waiting and waiting for the perfect moment to just pay them back and, you know, rubbing his hands like that. I, I will get you. He has forgiven them. And he recognizes and has a big enough view of God and God's activity in the world that he can say, you meant this for evil. God meant it for good. The ultimate example of God taking something that was meant for evil and turning it to good is Jesus on the cross. In Acts chapter 3, Peter stands up in front of this crowd of people that's gathered after a miracle, and he tells them, hey, you put the author of life to death on the cross. Like, he just has this really bold statement that he's making to them. You meant this for evil, essentially. But he says, God had this planned from the beginning. God was speaking about this in the prophets. 
You put to death the author of life, but God has raised him up. And just like God foretold long ago, you, you carried out this act against the author of life. But he says, I want you to, I'm calling you to repent. And when you repent, God has all of these blessings in store for you. The cross is the ultimate example of what someone meant for evil. God meant it for good. That be, through Christ's death, that we might have life in him. That the ultimate good might come from this ultimate bad. Now here's the question for you, and here's what I want you to really think about your own life for a moment, your own heart. Could you do what Joseph did? I asked you this question on the first week of the series. I said, if you were wronged the way Joseph was wronged, could you forgive them? And then beyond that, could you be reconciled to them? Could you actually invite them back into your heart and into your life again? Listen, if we believe the things that Joseph believed, then we can actually do what Joseph did. He had this big view of God. God is sovereign. God is powerful. God can bring good out of bad. And I want to give you some motivation this morning if you're struggling with forgiveness in a general sense or in a specific sense. I want to give you a couple of things to think about as we wrap up this sermon series and wrap up our time together this morning. And one is this, that God calls us to forgive. We, we see this in the scripture in a number of places. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 says this, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The Christian teaching is forgiveness is at the heart of our faith. Forgiveness is core to who we are and what we believe. We celebrate, we have the cross up in our room, and that's, that it's all about forgiveness, right? We, we have been forgiven by the God of the universe for our sins against him. And we will never be asked to forgive someone more than what God has already forgiven us of. Our sins against the holy and righteous God. And be through Christ, at a really high cost, we've been offered forgiveness of sins. And so because of that, we are to in turn be forgiving people. Forgive one another, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, because God in Christ forgave us. So will you be a forgiving person? Will you be someone that keeps that short list of accounts? Or will you be the Chris the sheep, emotionally, spiritually kind of person, right? We do have these fund, this fundamental choice. Uh, will we be a forgiving person? whether we're talking about in general or specific wrongs that have been committed against us, or will we be burdened by the unforgiveness and, and all of this? And the Christian idea is this, forgiveness is paying it forward. You understand that idea, right? Someone does something good for you and you're like, I'll pay you back. And they say, no, don't pay me back. Just pay it forward. Give it, extend it on to somebody else. That's what forgiveness is. We've received the ultimate forgiveness, and so we can offer relational forgiveness to people who have wronged us, people who have hurt us. I said, remember, there's two pieces of this, right? There's the internal. It's the internal letting go, and it's the external. I, I give up the right to have revenge, or I give up the right to this idea of you paying me back or me getting even with you in some way. That's what Joseph did. I do want to say, by the way, that I know some people have been through really brutal situations, crimes committed against you, abuses and things like that. 
And forgiveness does not necessarily mean that there's conse- the consequences for what someone has done are removed from them. That's not, forgiveness is not connected to that, right? Someone might have a debt to society. Someone might have to serve time for a crime that they've committed. And you saying, like, I don't, you don't have to do that. That's not what forgiveness is necessarily including, right? But it's this idea that I personally will not, I don't feel like I need to get even with you. I will not have revenge on, on you, right? That's between you and God or you and society or whatever, but I give up, I, I, let, the, I let you go free in some ways in my, my heart and mind. I'm not gonna hold on to this grudge and hang on to it. Forgiveness is very challenging, right? It costs something of us, but unforgiveness also has a cost and we need to be honest about that. We talked about being weighed down and burdened like, the, like Chris the sheep with his 90 pounds of wool on him, right? We, you've probably heard this quote before, and I'm not sure who first said it, but unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. That's what unforgiveness does. If, we, if, we're, if we're hanging on to hurts and wounds, we just hurt ourselves more than we ever hurt the person that has wronged us. You know what actually literally weighs you down? According to one study, Erasmus University, there's some researchers that had, had study participants write about a time that they'd experienced a conflict, a little writing assignment. And some were instructed to reflect on a time when they didn't forgive the offender. Others were told to think about the time they did forgive the person. And a third group wrote about a comparatively dull, just regular social interaction. That was the control group. And then they were given a small physical challenge. Jump five times as high as you can. Okay? Five times as high as you can. Then they asked the human, you know, guinea pigs to jump. And they said those who had been thinking about a time when they'd forgiven jumped the highest. They'd forgiven. So about 11.8 inches on average. And those who had written about their grudges, on the other hand, were only able to jump about eight and a half inches. There was no significant difference in the jumps of those in the non-forgiveness and the neutral conditions. In another similar experiment, they had people think about something that they'd been wronged by or they held a grudge, and then they, had, they estimated about how steep a hill was that they had to walk up. And the people who thought the hill was steeper were the ones that were hanging on to those grudges and the unforgiveness. So the results of this study suggest that there's a literal weight almost that we physically carry around with us when we hang on to our hurts, and refuse to offer forgiveness. One of my favorite quotes about forgiveness is by Lou Smeads, and he says, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that prisoner was you. Forgiveness is not simple, and I know some people in this room are likely dealing with really deep wounds and really big hurts. And the the reality is that we don't have to do this on our own because the one who forgave you is not just your example, but he's also the one that can empower you, provides the power and the help that you need to forgive other people. And remember that this is a part of the Lord's Prayer, right? If you ever pray the Lord's Prayer, try to pray this at least once a day. I personally do that. This is built into the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. This is a part of it. God calls us to regularly ask for help from him to forgive other people and to receive the forgiveness that we ourselves need. 
So as we're closing our time in this series and in this uh, time in Joseph's life and then our time together this morning, I want you to just to open, invite God to be a part of this in your heart and life. Is there someone that you need to forgive? Or maybe you need to ask for forgiveness from someone else. The one who provides your forgiveness can also provide the power that we need to forgive other people. And I want you right now in this time as we're concluding our time, we're going to pray together. Maybe, maybe you've never prayed about it. Maybe whatever grudge or hurt you're holding on to, you've never actually invited God to be a part of that. And I want you in this moment to ask God for the help and the power that you might need to overcome the trouble that we have with forgiveness. Lay aside the weight. You know, set a prisoner free and discover that that prisoner was you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, the story of Joseph is a powerful story of redemption and we are grateful for it. Lord, as we consider together um, this idea of forgiveness, this is challenging, God. And I know just around the room and maybe those viewing online that there is a lot of variety in the pain that people have gone through and some of it's really deep and really hard to even imagine forgiving. But Lord, you call us to be forgiving people because we are forgiven people. And we believe that you can actually take things that were meant for evil and bring good out of them. And Lord, may our trust in you, the sovereign, powerful God of the universe, help us to extend forgiveness. Help us to be forgiving people that do the internal work and the external work of forgiving the wrongs that have been done to us. Lord, give us the wisdom about each of these individual circumstances that people might be thinking through in the room. That Just because we forgive doesn't necessarily mean that the relationship is going to be where it was before the offense, whatever it might have been. Lord, we we can trust you for guidance and wisdom about how that, just how that plays out. But Lord, I pray that you would help us with this idea and help us to be, be forgiving people because we are forgiven people. And I pray for anyone, Lord, it, under the sound of my voice who has yet to become a forgiven person from you, to receive that gift of salvation that you freely offer and that you purchase at a high price. I pray that you'd help us to if there's anyone that fits that description, Lord, that they would put their trust in you right now. They'd say, I want you in my life. I want the forgiveness that you offer. Forgive me. I believe in you. I put my trust in you. And Lord, as that happens, I pray that you would just receive anyone that needs that this morning into your family and give them the joy and the, your spirit that will help them, Lord, with whatever they might be struggling with and the promises that you would never leave us nor forsake us, that you invite us to be a part of your family and to walk with you and to receive the hope that you offer. Lord, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your goodness. And Lord, for all of us who are your children already, your followers, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be these forgiving people. Help us with the individual circumstances that people might be thinking through around the room. We invite you into those situations, into those broken relationships, into those hurts, into those wounds. Be the God of all comfort. Restore any broken hearts and help us to be people who walk through this world in a lighter way, that we're not weighed down by broken relationships or offenses or wounds or whatever, but we can walk in this freedom, knowing that you're a good God, that you can bring good even out of bad.
So Lord, we thank you for these truths from your word. I pray you'd help us to walk in hope. Lord, hope that you are doing good things, that you have good plans for us. Lord, during this time of the year when we consider the arrival, Lord, this amazing gift of your son Jesus into this world, I pray that you'd help us to um, walk in a way that brings you glory and brings you honor in a way that fits with our understanding of who you are and what you've done in our lives. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.